You can, if you have a Bible, keep it open. We'll spend most of the time in Psalm 130, and as a little conclusion, look at Psalm 131. We're pursuing this theme of a journey. We're seeing that uh, God is with us in the long haul as we work out our faith in all of the challenges and trials of life. So we're resuming the journey of faith and gaining, I hope, fresh insights and perspectives, rich experience that are unique only to those who have done something. Gaining insights and experience unique to those who have, and if I was a sort of a, a Billy Graham, it would be like this, who have got out of their seats, but I'll change the term, and have got into your walking boots and have started on the journey. It's your call. It's your choice. You've got going. To give a, a quote that was in the paper this past week that fits, fits in, uh, the person who said this is Andre Good or Gid, uh, if you're any better for knowing that, but the quote is more important than who said it, and it's this. Man cannot discover new oceans unless he has the courage to lose sight of the shore. We cannot discover new oceans unless we have the courage to lose sight of the shore. The shore is safe but it can be a very sterile place. We can be risk-averse. And to launch out is the challenge of God's people. In Psalm 130, it comes to us as a sort of, the psalmist here is like a, a prayer leader. A bit like what we were doing this morning, uh, leading people in prayer, except this is one prayer leader. And I know that some of us use this time-honoured pattern when we think about prayer um, of, first of all, um, adoration. We think of confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Let's look at these three as, a, as uh, if you like, if I for the moment was to be um, a prayer leader. And an integral part of this psalm are four ingredients similar to these that I'm presenting to you now. First of all, Adoration. Look at uh, Psalm 117. This is the smallest psalm in the whole of the book of Psalms. As you know, the book of Psalms is called the hymn book of the Bible. And it's great we've been singing from it tonight. We can never exhaust it. So Psalm 117 is the smallest psalm. Two verses. Praise the Lord, all you nations. Extol him, all you peoples. The whole world called to engage in praise. For why? Great is his love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. What is it? It's adoration. Coming to him with thanksgiving and praising him for who he is. One would be tempted now to go to the biggest psalm, Psalm 119, and 176 verses and reflect on that. But uh, we would be pushing things too far. So, let's come to confession. 
Perhaps the classic confession that we have in the Psalms. It's David's confession following his adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. And he, in Psalm 51 and verse 10, says, with, with a sense of complete confession here, exposed and thinking, what's my problem? And any true believer will come face to face with this. What's my problem? The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And no more the blame game. No more. A real confession. And thirdly, thanksgiving, this delightful uh, call to worship, as, as well, so many of the Psalms, but perhaps this one so well known, Psalm 95, uh, where there is, you look at your fellow believer, and in God's presence you say, come, let us, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord, shout aloud to the rock of our salvation, let us come before him with thanksgiving, and extol him with song, and so on and so forth. It's a, it's vibrant, Thanksgiving. And then we come to the last, and this is where we call it Acts, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, and Supplication. Supplication is a little tricky in that it almost is similar to confession, but different. And just for the purpose of the sermon, I looked in the dictionary, um, the Oxford Dictionary, not in any other commentaries, and the, the definition of supplication is this humble petition. Humble petition. The hymn writer cap captures this, doesn't he? Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. Humble petition. And of course you have it. If we come back to Psalm 130 now and look at verses 1 to 4, that's what you have. This great supplication. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. And so on. Now, these four are helpful um, guidelines but don't be a slave to them they are just that an example, an outline for us when we think about uh, prayer and the journey of faith so what Psalm 130 does is to give us four different headings if you like so we've looked at that, let's look at four different ones and it's, it's a, if you like Psalm, this this Psalm 130 gives a, a, a different perspective on the same spirit of engaging in prayer. Let's look at them very quickly. Um, Psalm 130, verse 1. It's an interesting thing here. Look. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. And I put down in my notes in the sermon's prayer du in, uh, during the week... Um, When did you last cry? I was, asking, I was asking myself that question. And then, when did I last cry for somebody else? Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. So what we have here is, is emotion. Emotion. Some Christians live in a sort of a freezer, don't they? A, a, a zone that is frozen. Where all the emotions are kept in check. 
There were seven people when I was looking on this morning at the congregation, several men among them crying this morning with a sense of emotion that had been pent up. It's a very powerful thing, isn't it, to cry. So in our worship, are we honest with ourselves as best we can be? We're not the best judge of ourselves. So are we honest as best we can be? without besetting prejudices, and so on and so forth. And how honest can we be with others? And perhaps more importantly, how honest can we be with our Lord? Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive. And there you have it again. Not to my prayer, but to my cry for mercy. Well, that's pretty emotional, isn't it? Think of the tension of this psalm for a moment. Psalm 130. You've just got two things. Just think of them. The first in verses 1 and 2, human sinfulness. There you are, that's what we are. It's the whole point of being on a journey of faith. We are fellow sinners embarking upon a relationship with our Saviour. We ask for mercy. Human sinfulness. But then in verse 3 you have this, what we can call divine Sovereignty. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? Fair enough. Well, then, who are we to keep a record of sins? So you have these two things human frailty, God's sovereignty, God's faithfulness. But, so keep those two things in tension. That what I would call the tipping point is this. That into this comes forgiveness. Forgiveness. God's forgiveness is greater than human failure. That's the tipping point. So you see that. Human imperfection, God's holiness. Our frailty, his faithfulness. Now then, for us as Christians there can be a disconnect there is the forgiveness there. But we choose to stay unforgiven. It's a poor state to be in. Divine forgiveness greater than human failure. And so the psalm ends. Look at it. Verse 8, verse 7. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord with the Lord is unfailing love and with him full redemption. And we need to make the connection again and again. So there's the first thing, when we think of these four headings. Um, emotion. I cry to the Lord. Secondly, there is a, a need for realism. Or honesty. Because, well, what can you do? Verse 3, if you keep a record of sins, we, we like to think the Lord keeps a record of the good things. 
Well, we finished, haven't we? Who can stand? Who can stand? If you saw the television this past week and that magnificent athlete, Jessica Innes, who was called and summoned to stand before the Queen to be awarded the CBE. And when she was interviewed after, she was asked, as everybody asks, what did the Queen say? She said, I was so nervous I can't remember. Call to stand. To stand. What will it be like when we, mortals, stand before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? You see, the point is, in verse 3, that apart from forgiveness, if you don't mind the, the pun, none of us have a leg to stand on. None of us. But it seems to me there's a, there's a sort of a warning here, isn't there? If God is like that, well, surely it's incumbent upon me that I must be like that. Who am I to keep a record of other people's wrongs? God forbid. That's the application, isn't it? That's realism, surely. And here's a warning. Let's just turn to one, this reference in 1 Corinthians 10. Uh, I don't know what you, the page is in your Bible. I don't have the church Bible tonight. So, uh, 1 Corinthians 10. If you can't find it, just listen. It's warnings from the children of Israel and their history. They're brought out of captivity. They have their period of journeying and so on and so forth. And then, when Paul gives a little lesson from the past, in verse 6 he says, Now, this is 1 Corinthians 10 verse 6, These things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil as they did. And, well, don't be idolaters as some of them were. And so on and so forth. And then you get to verse 11 where it says, These things happened to them as examples that's history, that's the past. However, they are written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the age has come. So, this is, the, this is the context then. So, if you, my fellow believer, think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to all men and women. And God is faithful and will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can stand. Do you see that? Stand under it. So, you come back to this prayer. Lord, if you kept a... Who could stand? Well, of course. It's a rhetorical question. Nobody can stand. So the application surely for us in this praying is don't be too critical of others and don't be overconfident in ourselves. Realism. Thirdly, patience. How patient are we? Well, you notice in these verses four times we are urged to do the most difficult thing To wait. To wait. Wait for the Lord. 
My soul waits, in his word I hope, my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the... I think that's rather obvious, isn't it? Don't overdo that. So, there it is. Patience. We are called sometimes to wait. And in our increasing, frenetic, busy, busy world, this is the clarion call. Wait. It's a great thing sometimes when you have to wait because you have no choice. You have a zero option. Yesterday I had a phone call from Alan Story from the hospital and eight, eight months and so many weeks that he waited and waited for a transplant and there he's had it. He had no choice. He had no choice. Now, you think about our waiting, we keep our options open. This is the sort of a productive waiting till the right time, until God in his goodness provides for us. Wait. Wait. And interestingly, in his phone call, he read part of uh, Psalm 27, which ends like this. I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait. Well, there it is. And in our praying, we need the patience of faith, quite simply because we have no other option. It's not an, a hopeless wait. It's a wait, look at verses 5 and 6, as sure as day follows night. But you still have to wait. It's this idea of confident expectation. And lastly, as this psalm unfolds, Psalm 130, there's this expectancy. The recurring theme that is so much a feature of these songs of ascent, the idea of hope, hope. So that our crying, our frailty, our sinfulness, our waiting is undergirded by a living hope. So, Psalm ends, Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love and with him is full redemption. Don't forget, this is a penitent pilgrim, a forgiven believer. And Psalm 130 concludes with, with two sort of companions, if you look carefully at verse 7. The first, I hope this is a constancy for you, that you have been blessed with un failing love. That's it. Why should I put my hope in him? Because with him is unfailing love. That's pretty reasonable, isn't it? Unfailing love. Actually, it's, a, it's an interesting term. It's covenant love. God cannot, cannot, impossible for him to break his covenant. He will never abandon his people. So that's a great constancy for us. 
hymn writers help us here. How firm a foundation you saints of the Lord has laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said? What more can he say? His unfailing love. We who to Jesus for refuge have fled. Unfailing love and uh, second is full redemption. Full redemption. You have it there at the end of verse 7. And with him is full redemption. I always used to wince a little by uh, people who used to say that we are the full gospel. Which almost seemed to imply that others had a half empty gospel. I'm sure they meant well. But look, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and embarked upon the journey of faith. You have a full redemption. It's full. So three questions to conclude. The first, how does this God forgive? Well, look, he forgives with his unfailing love. That's how he does it. His unfailing love. Secondly, or why does he forgive, first of all? And, and how? How does he do that? How is it possible? It's possible because, there it is, with him, uniquely, exclusively with the Lord, is full, unconditional redemption. And lastly, the question you may ask, what? Think of our lives. What does he forgive? Well, look, the answer is in the final sentence. All our sins. It's pretty good, isn't it? All our sins. Well, that Psalm 113 is a little sort of PS to this Psalm 131. And in many ways, the commentator suggests it is a companion to this psalm. Well, it goes without saying, if we kept reading on, my heart is not proud. What have I got to be proud about? Nothing. These things are too wonderful for me. And then he uses a very simple but powerful illustration. I have stilled and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. And it's repeated for emphasis. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Just think of that picture for a moment, just to make a quick comment. Think of a child, an infant, a little baby. Before weaning, as some of you know from experience with your children, before weaning, the infant is aware of the mother as a resource for food. And the best way, of course, is to cry, and especially in the middle of the night, and so, as you well know, before weaning, the infant knows no more than that. A resource for food. However, what the psalmist is saying is, and after that, after weaning, the infant is now content to be with the mother. To lean on her breast. Not simply as a resource to survive, but as a relationship 
that will flourish in the course of time. And what is the psalmist saying? Well, the analogy ends, O Israel, there it is in verse 3, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. What's the point? Surely the point is this. That's how it ought to be between us and the Lord. Like a weaned child. That we don't simply come to God only as a resource. But for a growing, deepening relationship as we journey. It's quite a powerful illustration, isn't it? Forgiven and humbled. We are going to sing now, please, Alexandra, as we come to the Lord's table, with these, this sort of outline of praying and worshipping in our mind, and think about our Lord Jesus, and think about us as believers, like a weaned child. It's a lovely picture, isn't it, of relationship. And so, this him tries to capture this. Uh, he is my refuge in each deep distress. The Lord, my strength, my glorious righteousness. Through flood and flames, he leads me safely on. Daily makes his sovereign goodness. In other words, you see, as the journey, as the relationship develops and it unfolds before us. Oh, that my soul could love and praise him more. May that be true of us. We're